Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we continue our in-depth conversations about race and racism. We're talking with Dr. Greg Hall, a primary care physician. He operates his own clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, that focuses on treating blacks. He also served 16 years on the Ohio Commission on Minority Health. He is the author of a new book, Patient-Centered Clinical Care for African Americans, published by Springer International Publishing. Joining us for this series is our co-host, Judge Gail Williams-Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court. We discuss racism towards blacks in medicine and healthcare. Dr. Hall, a, a couple of years ago, I guess it was about three years ago, I, I interviewed an author who uh, wrote a book about racial inequality in America's healthcare. And she indicated to me that 84,000 African American and Latinos die each year in the U.S. due to health care disparities and unconscious racial and ethnic bias. Now, that was three years ago. Are we in the same place? Are we in a worse position? Where are we right now? Well, it's a good question. We're, we're probably in a worse position just because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And um, so, uh, the one thing that the pandemic is unveiling is the, the extent of the chronic diseases that exist in, in vulnerable populations like African-Americans. And so you've got a disproportionate number with hypertension, diabetes, obesity, um, heart disease. Uh, and so those things normally will smolder along, but in a pandemic, they get unveiled. And now you've got you know, worse outcomes. You got people in the ICU because of because of the coronavirus, and it's they're having worse outcomes with the coronavirus because of the chronic disease. So that being in the hospital, then now you've got more opportunity for bias, more opportunity to, you know, more connections with healthcare providers, and the possibility that those outcomes might be negative. Does this go back to? Uh med school, where does this start, this bias? You know, it starts at home. It starts before school. It starts before um, preschool, right? <laughs> it starts okay. really early in uh, and, and a lot of cases, right? And um, it just needs to be modified through education and through how you're, who you're exposed to. Like initially, you're exposed to your family. Your family is presumably one race or one, one you know, sort of one thought. And then you, you go out in the neighborhood and you find out there are people that have to think more different ways and you see different people and families that do different things. Some people eat dinner at 4.30, other people eat dinner at 7. And then as you go more into school, you find out there's more things and you meet black people or Asian people or you know Native Americans. And then you find out how their cultures are. And you know everyone is biased that whatever they're doing is the right, is the right thing usually, or it's the appropriate thing, or it's the normal thing, right? And so as you go forward, so we've got students who have, you know, been around white people their whole lives. They went to a white high school. They went to an Ivy League, mostly white college, and then they ended up in the medical school. And, and there was a whole 
a lot of white people there. And then when they go to practice medicine, they walk in the room with a black person who's looking at them like, who are you and what are you doing in my room? And then and they're like, I'm the great doctor that's been trained my whole life to do this, but why are you not liking me? You know, and so it's, and they've not been told that, you know, 44% of African-Americans don't trust healthcare providers regardless of race, right? They haven't been told that other people eat dinner at 4.30 versus seven. And those those biases are, are built in the foundation of, of each of those people. And so until we start trying to, um, you know, sort of share what diversity means, what differences there are, and and what things you should expect when you talk to a different type of patient, we're going to continue to get the same sort of outcomes. From what I've read, doctor, it is not based on income either. It's uh, or class. It's it's based on race. Uh, you know, people uh, with PhDs and doctorates and, and other types of degrees still get treated in a negative way by the white medical establishment. Is that correct? Well, I mean, it happens in the, you know, you, I try to stay away from generalizing, but that's, you know, it, overall, it generally is true, but, you know, any individual encounter could be different. Um, you know, I had acute appendicitis a few years back and was a physician in the hospital, right? And and had sur- major surgery. And then they, they, when they gave me the medicine for pain medicine, it was it made my abdominal pain worse. It didn't make it better. And I, I got like three doses of it. And every time I got a dose, it made it worse. And so I called the nurse. I said, you know, I need something different. I need something else. And they came and said, looked at me like I was drug seeking. Oh, you want something <laughs> else now? And, and I'm like, there, and they called me Dr. Hall throughout the whole thing, but it was just interesting that that now all of a sudden I'm this drug-seeking black patient who who and 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 I felt like why am I defending myself? And and they're looking at me like why are you asking for more pain medicine? And I was like, well, and immediately, and I don't know that that was based on race to be honest with you. It may have just, just you know the opioid epidemic impacts everyone, but it was just funny how. The bias went instantly to me being drug seeking when I when it really was just a lack of that one medicine that I'd never had in my life didn't work. Judge Gale, you've had incidences where you have claimed that you have been targeted, if uh, to use that term, I guess, uh, by by white medical personnel. Indeed, and uh, Dr. Hall's experience, I think, is is what he describes is very common to um, many um, Blacks and and minorities. Um, I was sharing recently that even during this pandemic, um, I was explaining that I um, went to urgent care because I am in several high-risk categories and I was not feeling well. And no doubt we were all being warned about what um, what to look for by way of signs. If you were concerned that you may be experiencing some of the signs and symptoms of coronavirus, and I certainly was concerned given the cat category I was in, and um, <clears throat> I showed up at the urgent care, and I explained this as well as what I do every day, and the fact that you know, as a judge, you don't get to pick who walks. In your courtroom, you don't get to pick who you're exposed to. You don't get to decide, um, you know, what those levels are. But you certainly want to be as safe as possible. And in this entire experience, I could not even get a test. And and this was it was jarring and amazing. And I'd even said to the physician, "Hey, you know, I, I don't like the poll rank, but I want to be very clear. This is what I do every day. Yeah, I see people from all walks of life and." Yeah, there's no telling what my exposure level have been. And right now I can hardly breathe. And yeah, I've got some some breathing limitations. And I was and this was during a time when, you know, giving prescriptions for antibiotics was, you know, almost like, oh, no, we don't do that because we don't we don't want anyone to have antibiotics. And three months prior, you couldn't get an antibiotic for anything. And I was gladly given a prescription for antibiotics, but could not get a test for COVID for anything. And because I couldn't 
um, then that was just, it was amazing. And at the same time, the main, one of the major hospitals right here in Cleveland Clinic, um, you drive past there and the parking lot looked like Cedar Point. I mean, there were literally lines down the street and around the corner. And everyone that was there was there because their doctor had given them a prescription or had given them a referral to get a test. And I said, well, gosh, you know, clearly those people's doctors cared enough to give them a referral to get a test. And here I show up at urgent care with all of these issues and I can't even get a referral to get a test. That's amazing. And I knew in that moment that, you know, if I looked like any one of my white colleagues that I wouldn't have even had to ask, I would have been offered a test. If I were my colleague's spouse, I would have been offered a test. And I think if probably if I were my colleague's pet, I would have been offered a test. And, and that was just, that was amazing to me. But it's also just the reality of the situation. And I, I don't doubt that so many similarly situated to me probably um, felt the same way. Would have felt Dr. Hall, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is infant mortality rates. Uh Am, am I correct that they're higher among the African-American population? Oh, absolutely. They're um, significantly higher. And, you know, to your point earlier, it cuts across socioeconomic status. And so people think about uh, Serena Williams and any um, high profile um, African-American woman who, who would have access to great insurance and the best hospitals and and the best biased care, you know, from, but they still had, have, have a higher risk for having poor outcomes. And that's the thing that we're trying to figure out. Why is that? Why, when you have insurance and you've got a PhD or, and you've got all the, the, the money that you need in prenatal care, why are there still worse outcomes? And so some people have, have, have believed that it's, it just, it's just racism. It's just, uh, oppression. It's just the stress of living in a world where you're a second-class citizen. And, and when you're when you're sort of, you know, the bias associated when the police pull you over or when you're tracked, followed in a department store or, or you know, just whatever the thing in the hospital, in the emergency room, in the library, wherever you are, just that constant oppression, uh, maybe setting off cortisol, maybe shortening your telomeres or, or doing whatever that's going to cause worse outcomes. And that, that, and we're getting to the point now in medicine that we're thinking that that might be, that might be the secret. It's not just having insurance or just getting prenatal care. I just wanted to ask a, a follow-up. Would that also be the, the case with hypertension? and some of the other uh, issues that you deal with day in and day out? Well, and to a certain extent, um, it, it probably is the, the case with hypertension. There, now, there is some genetic predisposition for, for high blood pressure. It actually runs in my family. I've got two uncles who had high blood pressure and went on, on dialysis and died before the age of 40. And that's more. And I have a brother who was the same thing, uh, dialysis, and died in his mid-40s. Um, so in my, the Hall family, there is a gene that gives you super high hypertension and that would lead to premature uh, kidney disease. Now, there's also people that are just the, just the chronic stress um, can, can lead to increased blood pressure, increased blood sugar. Um, you know, they're really getting to the point where if you see, you know, a five-year-old obese child, you know, a five-year-old, 100-pound five-year-old, and you're thinking about talking to them about what they're eating, you're way off base. The, you know, if you have an obese five-year-old, you've got to find out, are they being abused? Is it, what's the situation at home? I mean, you, you, the last thing you think about is what they're eating. And so we're, we're getting to the point where we're, we're now starting, when you see all this chronic disease manifesting, we're trying to figure out what is actually driving this. And it's usually not the obvious answer. Gail, I'm sorry I interrupted. It's all yours. No, actually, I think Dr. Hall answered my question because my question was going to be um, a dovetail on infant mortality, but I also wanted to talk about the impact on the actual mothers and whether or not you believe that there was um, a correlation between chronic stress on the Black community as a whole and um, what 
this is what this is doing to the actual mothers, not just the mortality rate of the babies, but how that's impacting the mothers. And I think you you address that as it relates to the children. But if you'd like to address that as it relates to mothers and just black community as a whole, I'd love to, to hear your take on that. Yeah, I mean, there it's it's a we you know the thinking now is that that's the secret right um, being poor um, wondering whether you're going to get robbed whether, whether the lights are going to be on whether the toilet's going to work whether you're going to ha- you know whether you're going to have support in raising your child um, you know whether you're going to have daycare whether your job is still going to be there whether your transportation is there the cost of gas all those things um, keep you from concentrating on being a good mother. You know, I mean, if they keep your body from from being able to just rest and rejuvenate and nurture, you know. And so those things we're thinking now are the things that's driving up uh, the infant mortality because a lot of those dynamics and the dynamics of racism cut across socioeconomics, as, of, as I've already said, and that though that that chronic pressure could be could be the secret. What impact, if any, would it have on postpartum depression in the African American population? That's interesting. Um, you know, I haven't seen any data that's that says that there's a disproportionate amount of postpartum depression in in African American um, women. Um, so I can't really speak to that because I, I haven't seen that. It doesn't mean it's not out there. It just means I, I haven't seen it. But 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 definitely the, the stress of being black in America is is driving some of the infant mortality that's out there. Some of the and and some of it is is education or lack of education. Some of it is bad habits, you know, smoking, uh, drinking, drugs, all those things. Those things are, are are there too. I mean, there's always people that what about the patient does? Well, that's true too. But what what's driving? you know, a lot of that, a lot of that behavior. Now we're, we're getting to the point with the opioid epidemic where we're seeing it as a disease and we're seeing it, you know, as a, as a symptom of, of other things. And so that's the same sort of thing. When we see, you know, people smoking while they're, while they're pregnant, that's a symptom of something else. That's just not bad behavior. That's, that's something else. And so Dr. Hall, what I've, heard and what I've seen at at least recently, and I won't call it a phenomenon, what I'll say is it's something that I think in the Black community we've sort of known and heard and and watched as a a while, but I think it's only entered the public policy spectrum recently, which is the frequent declaration of racism as a public health crisis. And I think that's what I've heard you saying just sort of um, definitionally here is that um, what we've seen sort of manifest is all that the black community has experienced is, is, is really a public health crisis manifesting itself. Is that what you're saying? It's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that a lot of communities are, are struggling with. I'm on the board of health for Cuyahoga County, and we we are poised to say that. But it's just like you know, if you say it and then walk away, you know, what's the point? But I think it's people should know that when you've had all these interventions and you still have poor outcomes. I mean, so African Americans have the worst outcomes for heart heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, stroke. Um, you know, they have fewer breast cancer occurrences, but when they get breast cancer, they have by far the most uh, deaths related to it. And so when you see a, a, a population that just has the worst for heart disease, worse for cancers, worse for a number of other things, diabetes, for a number of things, and you wonder, so what is it? Why, why does this community, why are they so hard hit in every way and across all all strata, no matter how much money you make or where you live, and the only common thread is is the racism. It's it's, it's the color of your skin. That's the only thing that, that's left that we haven't unturned as a um, medical society. Is we really haven't addressed that, and so it's a sort of now that we kind of the culmination of pandemic and 
and uh, you know the racial issues with the police and all that sort of brought us to the point where we have to kind of contend with racism as being sort of the only reason for these differences. How does that impact on the uh, pandemic? We we see a, a higher percentage of uh, African American uh, and uh, other uh, racial minorities uh, involved in deaths. Uh, the governor in Ohio has asked for a special study of this. Is enough being done to see why this is happening? Well, I mean, the reactions have been, I mean, I've been surprised, really. They're doing a lot. Uh, the governor has done, a, I think, an outstanding job of, of you know, not ignoring um, these differences. And he's a, a great task force that, that's, you know, looking at, ways to make things better. But, you know, it's important to note, when I was on the Commission for Minority Health, I thought minorities had bad outcomes and majority white people had better outcomes. But the reality is African-Americans alone have the worst outcomes. Um, Hispanic Latinos and Asian Pacific Islanders, they live longer than white people. And so many times when I ask physicians about it, they think minorities have it bad and majorities have it good, but it's specific to African-Americans and to another extent to Native Americans, the oppression and, and, and the, the sort of second-class citizen status that other minorities don't have as much. And I think some of that is what's driving, um, you know, the poor, the poor outcomes. But the poor outcomes are also due to poor education and poor job opportunity and poverty and, and, and those things that, that it, it, you know, opportunity, you know, redlining, those things that, that sort of set up in the past the, the, the oppressive system that we see now. And then when we see bad choices and, and, and murder and, and same sex murdering and same race, rather same race murdering, and you think, well, they, they, you know, they just need to the help themselves. But, but this, our system, unfortunately, was set up in a way that we're getting sort of what we, what we set up. Dr. Hall, there was something you said earlier um, that really struck me um, because it has a stark intersection with the justice system, which is you said 44% of African-Americans do not trust their health care providers. Interestingly enough, approximately the same, if not maybe even slightly higher percentage of African-Americans also don't trust their justice system. So there seems to be just profound levels of distrust among African-Americans of two of the most important systems in place um, that are designed to help preserve the health and safety of African-Americans. And I'd be interested in knowing how we overcome that, at least from the healthcare perspective, because we certainly need doctors and we need a justice system. So I know what my responsibility is. Um, how do you see your responsibility in helping to overcome that 44% gap? Well, uh, unfortunately, you have to do it one person at a time, <laughs> and it's it's not easy. Uh, and I and part of what I'm doing, part of what I did with the book, and with working with medical students, is trying to share what I didn't know. I didn't know that 44 percent of African Americans didn't trust me as a provider until maybe five years ago. And so I'm I'm 25 years into my practice. So for 20 years, I'm walking around not knowing why almost every other African-American patient that I met kind of looked at me a little strange. And, and I, they eventually liked me, you know, because I was doing the same sort of things, but it made, after I found that out, it made my, uh, my outlook completely different. I used to, sometimes if I was tired, I walk in and a person's, you know, arms crossed and looking at me all stern and I might look back at them. Well, what are you mad at me about? I'm here, you know, <laughs> And then we get off to a dysfunctional relationship because I don't know the lay of the land. And so it's sort of like conversations like we're having now to let providers, you know, some physician may, may find out, oh, wow, every other black patient 
doesn't like me or my kind, regardless of my race or regardless of how good I am to, to um, African-Americans. Yes. And if, if, since you know that, then you know that's a thing, you know, and I think, um, you know, it's 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 it really helps for people to know it's and it's helped my relationship with my patients because it gives me a different perspective. And it really helps for the, the residents I talk to at the hospital that are in training and they they're meeting patients. They say, why are they so mean or why? Why? Why don't they? Why do they treat me that way? And it's like, well, because you don't know what uh, the healthcare system has done to them between, um, you know, um, you know, t things like the Tuskegee syphilis study or grave robbing or experimentation on African-Americans as slaves. So there's, there's 400 years of a really bad dysfunctional relationship between healthcare providers, the medical healthcare system and African-Americans. And so now that we're interested in trying to correct that, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a, you know, a concerted effort, and it's going to have to take some acknowledging of some of the things that happened in the past. Doctor, talk about your clinic and uh, and the philosophy behind your clinic. How you approach uh, the the practice of medicine and addressing the the answer that you just gave. How are you doing this? Well, it, it, the important thing is to do it one person at a time. Every person is, has value. Every person has a, has a position. Um, with my practice, the first thing I do is make small talk. And so I tell my residents, I, I make a point of not getting to the point. So I, I will never walk into an exam room and say, what are you here for? Uh, what can I, you know, I'm always, how about those calves? How about the browns? What about the pandemic now? So I would tell me about your family. What about your vacation? What are you doing? Um, because once you can start relate, making a relationship between the, you and the patient, then you're starting to get to the point where you can actually tell them something. So I always tell uh, my residents who don't know anything about it, I have a terrible sense of direction. Whenever I would go somewhere, I would invariably get lost and I'd go to a gas station and ask directions. And if the person gave me those directions, it didn't sound confident. If I didn't trust their answer, I'd nod yes, and then I'd walk out, get in my car, and then drive to the next gas station and walk in and ask someone, and, and hopefully I felt better about their answer. And so the same thing is true for a lot of patients. They're going to sit and nod yes while a, a doctor tells them what they need to do, and then if there's no relationship, if there's no trust, they're going to walk out and try to tell they can find someone who, who they do trust. And so as much as I can, I try to build relationships with each patient so that if I give them advice, I've got a shot at them taking it. And wouldn't you agree, doctor, that there's something to be said about how much more um, committed um, and how much more skin in the game you have when the patients that you see that come into your clinic and come into your your room look like you. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I say that because when my courtroom looks like a Black Baptist church on a Sunday morning, there's something that is that evokes a certain passion for the work that I do because those faces are reminding me of you know, my cousins, my nieces, my nephews, my aunts, my uncles, my my parents. And I instinctively want to not only uphold my oath, but I absolutely feel committed to ensuring that I'm doing the best job I can because I'm clearly aware that, you know what, the there's no one else in the room that's in a position of trust and power, but me. And so they're looking back at me like I'm looking at them and I want them to be able to respect me and to trust me and to know that they can trust this process and they can trust this system. Do you have that same sense of responsibility? Oh, absolutely. Because what, what happens is that frequently the patients have seen a number of other doctors who, or another num number of other healthcare providers who 
may have frustrated them or not listened to them or, or, or you know, sort of blew off whatever complaints that they had. And they look at me with a sense that then you're finally, I'm going to get listened to someone who's been through what I, you know, another person that grew up in the inner city and, you know, and all the things that goes along with that. And so, I, you know, it's like, it's a responsibility, but also it's, you know, it's a bias. And so you have to, you can't overcome your biases unless you, unless you recognize them. And so I always say, you know, if I have someone that doesn't speak English, like some of, I have a Spanish patient and they don't speak English, and then I have to use an interpreter, that person, unless I try to compensate, is not going to get the same sort of care that from me or, or the attention or, or because of the process of having someone translate what what I'm saying and what they're saying. And so I have to, I have to be aware of that, okay, this is an opportunity that I might, they might get inferior care from me. And so let me overcompensate for this. And so it's the same sort of thing. If I see someone who looks like my grandmother, they're going to get care like my grandmother would get. But if they don't look like my grandmother, they might not get that care. And so that's, you know, you have an African-American in with an East Asian physician, there, there's very little that sort of unites them. And so they have to try to make a point and say, I, I may be biased against this physician. The physician, I may be biased or indifferent to um, to this patient. And, and you've got a dysfunctional sort of r- relationship. And so, um, you know, I think what it is, it's, it's, it's great that if, if an African-American comes to an African-American physician, they, they kind of feel more secure, like they're gonna give me some really good care, but other physicians of other races can earn their trust. And I, I have, I know a ton of patients that see physicians of other race and ethnicities that would love them, wouldn't leave them for the world. I mean, they, they so it's, you can earn this trust. It's not hopeless, but um, it certainly helps when you see sort of that, that um, cultural congruence. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Doctor, you have a new book coming out here in in July, uh, Patient-Centered Clinical Care for African-Americans, a concise, evidence-based guide to important differences and better outcomes, published by Springer International Publishing. First of all, tell us a little bit about the book, but also tell us about the process of the book, because I find that very interesting. Oh, thank you. Well, the book came out in January. Um, and it's the uh, first book that kind of looks at best practices. We call them clinical pearls um, for African Americans, sort of all brought together under in, in one book. And um, I, um, so I was a chairman of the Ohio Commission on Minority Health for many years, and I would give a talk at the beginning. I'd have to give a chairman's report, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do in my chairman's report, so I figured I would just talk about whatever health disparities there were. And I would just read some articles and prepare like a little 20 minute talk. And I would learn uh, some things that I didn't know as a physician. And so I started putting the things that I would learn on my website, uh, just to, just because I have a 90% African-American patient base. 
and just for their um, sort of benefit. And then I realized the more I read, there was a ton of research-based outcomes on just little differences in the clinical care, differences in the medications you would choose for hypertension or the differences in how you interpret a, a lab for diabetes or just differences in the risk for this, that, and the other thing. And I thought, you know, this needs to be, you know, with all the talk of health disparities and bad outcomes in African-Americans, we need to pull this together into one, one thing. So if you happen to have, like me, a 90% African-American population, you can you could really benefit because I was benefiting just by by reading it. So I, I took two years in my quote unquote spare time, <laughs> put all those put all those things together and then started, um, you know, submitting it to different publishing companies. So I would go to the page and they'd say, you know, you had to do a, a book proposal and it sort of gave them a short overview. And then they'd ask you, how does your book compare to other books like it? Um, how does your what is your book addressing that's new and different? And and so in my book, I said, well, this is the first book that talks about the clinical care of African Americans across disciplines. You know, hypertension, diabetes, renal disease, communication, diet, all those other things, and um, and it impacts a, impacts a population of forty four million uh, people. And I kept getting rejected. I had rejected eight times. And, and they said, well, it's written well, but it's just not, these type of books um, usually don't sell. And I said, well, there's never been this type of book. You know, they, other books are like health disparities books, which are more esoteric, um, you know, not clinical. Mine is, you know, if you see someone with hypertension, use hydrochlorothiazide or amlodipine, you know, some specific, not, you know, racism is bad. Um, you know, which is, which is more of what the health disparity books were about. But I, it, it struck me how hard it was and how many rejections to get a book that impacted, you know, 44 million. And one company had a book on a disease that in fact impacts 8,000 people. And so in, in my discussion, email discussion with the lady who was rejecting me, I said, you know, you have a book that that addresses a disease that that affects 8,000 people a year, but you won't accept a book that that will in fact, uh, a, you know, disease is for a population that has the worst outcomes and in, in 44 million. And of course, I didn't get a response to that email, but it it, it could be frustrating. It could be pretty frustrating. Um, but but thankfully, it's been it's been doing well uh, and 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 sort of aligning with uh, sort of a new awareness of, you know, just a certain differences or, or the epigenetic, you know, so the genetic differences, like I was talking about in my family with increased hypertension, you know, there's cystic fibrosis occurs more in white people, sickle cell occurs, you know, there's those genetic differences, but the epigenetic differences is, uh, is this, you know, like the racism, the oppression, you know, poverty, those things and, and how that makes, you know, we think that um, the stress impacts your immune system and your immune system is what blocks cancers from forming. So it's possible that, you know, because the women get breast cancer, then it becomes more aggressive just because of the toxic environment that they're in. And so when you, when, same thing, you know, you COVID should be 80% should be, should be uh, asymptomatic, or whatever, but if you're in a toxic environment and you've got hypertension and diabetes, now all of a sudden you're on, you're on a ventilator. And so, that's that's sort of grown growing out of this current events. I want to I want to take us if if we could to uh, a, a bit into the future um, in in the last ten minutes or so that we uh, have to talk with you, Doctor, and and let me just say as as a, a just recently retired white guy. I I was hoping that over my lifetime that we had solved some of the racial issues and closed the racial divide. Uh, over the last few months, I've discovered that that's not true, and perhaps I was naive in thinking that that was true. Uh, and that there are many conversations that we need to have that we haven't had uh, uh, 
and perhaps I've been the ostrich hiding my head in the sand. What do you see going forward from this moment of Black Lives Matter, from this moment of a re-realization that racism is a daily thing in our society? Where do we go from here? Well, that's a that's a deep question, and I certainly don't have all the answers. I mean, I'm still learning. Um, you know, like you, I I kind of thought we were further along than than we were, um, and now I'm sort of dismayed that we're just as mired as we've ever been. You know, yeah. and and so I, you know, I I think to a certain extent, I feel like. You know, the older people, we all just need to die away so this new group kind of comes along. And they, <laughs> to, to a certain extent, you know, it's like, he's like, are you going to fix us? Are the people like us, the people in our age range, I'm 59, um, or, or do you just sort of wait? Uh, and then you wonder whether, you know, how is this next generation being impacted with all this divisiveness and whatnot? But I think overall, you know, it's just to recognize, I think diversity measures, seeing that, you know, we're stronger when you have a diversity of opinion in the room. Um, you know, you're better, you're not going to think up the best solution for anything if you're in a room by yourself. You need to have a whole lot of different input. And I think getting away from the generation of me, you know, into, the, to, into a generation of us where, you know, decisions are made by community. I think that's sort of going in the right direction and saying, you know, if I if I have an African-American in a room, I'm going to make better decisions. If I have an Asian-American in a room, I'm going to make better decisions. And so I think to a certain extent, I, you know, we see that on TV. I mean, there's all kinds of diversity on TV. Now, that's not reflected in the real world, but I'm seeing more interracial marriages and commercials and, and just a lot of diversity we're seeing that and i'm but it's just that in the real life it's not manifesting not as much but that's certainly different than in the 70s when you you didn't see all the diversity on tv so i i think we're inching in the right direction it, it's just it's just painful i think for some of us i absolutely agree but i i would i would say doctor that the, the one thing i would um I would disagree is that I, I don't think there's benefit in an entire generation um, of, of individuals who are full of wisdom and promise and the ability to guide us through um, of dying off. I think that we stand to lose so much by um, by walking away from some, from all that the generations even before us have to offer Um and to give us the fact that we have such powerful conversations like the ones we have here, and um, we lose so much. But I also, you know, I, I have a Southern mama who is full of sayings. And one of the things she would always say is you got to grow where you're planted. And insofar as we're all sort of planted in these different professions, I think one of the ways that we can address even the, the issue and the question that um, Tom brings up is how do we move forward is, you know, just addressing and dealing with implicit bias in our respective professions. Um, I think that's something that you addressed earlier, um, Dr. Hall, is, is the implicit bias that exists in the medical profession. I know for a fact that it exists in the legal profession. And I wonder, you know, how do you see that being addressed so that um, either we can overcome this issue. And if not um, dealing with that, I also wonder as a second thing is how do we create more opportunities for Blacks to enter the medical profession? Because no doubt, you know, Black folks are still going to need the the care um, and the long and short-term care. Um, and we've got to create more avenues for them to be comfortable getting it. And they've got to be in, in environments with medical professionals that are going to give it to them um, in a empathetic environment. So how do we how do we fix that? Well, I appreciate what you're saying. And, and of course, I don't want to die off. But um, but in dealing with 
with patients. Some patients are so set in their ways. Like we're having this open discussion about how how we're biased uh, and 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 how what can we fix with bias and how can we do things. But I also meet a whole lot of people who aren't interested in in changing their perspective, white and black. They aren't interested in 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 changing their opinion on things or their leanings or their biases. I am what I am, sort of the Popeye the Sailor Man approach. And I have some of that, when I'm exposed to it, I don't know that, that they, they're going to be talked out of it. But you were right, uh, having these discussions amongst the people who are, we can be an example uh, sort of to the next generation. Uh, it's going to be really important that we're um, deliberate about being fair in terms of access to being a physician. You know, there are a lot of things that sort of set up um, that are against success for African-Americans in terms of going to medical school or law school, standardized tests being one of them. Um, standardized tests are, 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 are not an African-American's friend, whether it's an SAT, ACT, GRE, MCAT, any of those tests. And, and, and being able to look at how that is excluding uh, 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 you know, an entire community from access to scholarships and, and access to higher education so that you can become a provider. Um, that's going to be something that we're going to be looking at within the next um, couple of years. Um, and also having an opportunity to mentor uh, students. So I'm trying to be open to um, any students, but I want to be particularly open to African-American students so they can come and see what a doctor does and, and really give them an opportunity to, to wonder, you know, we get to see what basketball players' lives are like on TV, but you don't get to see what doctors' lives are like. And so everyone wants to be a basketball player. But so in ways that we can expose them to successful uh, African-Americans and that live good lives, I think we can inspire sort of a next generation to sort of uh, work toward those things. I think you're so right. And Tom, remember I told you, I don't think I could take a test to get out of high school. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't either, but that's just because I, I don't do well on standardized tests. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I'm not sure I could make it through uh, law school at this point. But, uh, uh, Doctor, you do a lot of work. Uh, one last area I wanted to ask you about. And that you do some work with uh, uh, African-American seniors. Uh, and in nursing homes, I, I notice, and in various retirement uh, villages and, and uh, uh, care facilities. Uh, what difference do you understand from them to your younger patients in your clinic? Well, you know, there's some, there's, there's obviously a ton of wisdom, right? I, I learn from my patients. I, I like working with older patients because I, I learn from them and I like to be in an environment where I can learn. Uh, and so there's, I, you know, you learn some good things, you learn some bad things. Like I would say to people that, and, and after you reach a certain age and I haven't reached it yet, you just don't care. You know, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care. I don't care what I say, you know, but um, so it. It, that environment, and, and there's a lot of value, a lot of wisdom. I mean, I have a 108-year-old patient. She lived through two pandemics, the one in 1918 and the one in 2020. And so that's just so fascinating to me and that she's continuing to, 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 to live and, and, and do well. And so, but it's, it's what they've seen. It's what they've done. It's what they've survived, you know, survived the, the death of their spouse and their, sometimes the death of their children. And it sort of inspires me. Like when you think, oh, I couldn't, I, I well, if something happened to so-and-so, I would just die. But, but these people have had it happen to them and they, and they haven't, they just kind of continue on and being, and seeing physicians that care about them finally for many of them, that's that that there's you know had the time to sit down and talk to them or listen to their complaints. Um, you know, a lot of times that's the first time that it's, it's happened. And then finally, in the nursing homes that I go to, this for some of them is the best years of their life of their lives. I mean, many of them have have lived hand to mouth their entire lives, bad jobs, bad families, homeless. And, and they reach a certain age and they end up in a nursing home and now they've got three, three squares and, 
and you know people coming after them and activities and the heat's on and they and this may be the best years it wouldn't be for us but they they're living the best years of their lives and so they want to keep living those lives and so i'm i'm frequently an advocate for you know let's 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 help these patients live their best life this is not they're not just going to die they're actually living their best lives you also seem to be that bridge between that older generation and the younger generation that you take from them and and give to the younger perhaps right i hadn't thought of it that way but you're right i mean i i do have to work with the two ends of the spectrum between the hospital and the medical school and the um and the nursing home but there's there's something to be learned from from all of them really i learned from my students as well Doctor, we can't thank you enough for talking with us today. Uh, I know uh, I certainly appreciate it. I won't try to speak for Judge Gale. She can speak for herself, but thank you so much. I only have one more question, which is where can we find your book? Oh, yeah. The book the book is on the Springer website. It's on sale um, right now. The Springer has put it on sale because of the Black Lives Matter um, uh, situations and the unrest. And so it's, it's been on sale on the Springer website until the end of September. And then it's on, it's, um, they're selling it at an Amazon and you know, wherever books are sold otherwise, but you pay the full price. But if you want to get it for a song um, or a little bit more than a song, uh, you go to the Springer website. And that's Springer International Publishing. And you can go to their website and, and find it right there. Absolutely. Or if you go to my website, there's a hyperlink. It's drgreghall.com, D-R-G-R-E-G-H-A-L-L.com. And then right on that front page, you click on the book cover and it'll take you to the Springer site where it's on sale. I have to echo um, my colleague and my friend and my co-host, Judge Hodson here, in thanking you for joining us, Dr. Hall. You have been amazing. Um, you are a wealth of knowledge and you, your candor and your depth of knowledge here has been more than enlightening. I am so grateful that you've joined us today and that you've shared your experience and everything that you've shared with us on this important topic of the intersection between racism, race, and medicine and how it has impacted the African-American community. Thank you for your expertise, but also thank you for your insight. Well, thank you. And thank both of you for uh, having me. It's been a great, great pleasure. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Greg Hall, a primary care physician about racism in healthcare towards Blacks. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast, or you can review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.